listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. This is the second of three Sundays in which we're going to deal with texts from a three-chapter section of the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, in which Paul tries to wrestle through what was for him and for the early church a matter of enormous theological and spiritual consequence. As I summarized it last week, this is essentially what Paul is facing. Firstly, he believes powerfully that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah of Israel. Secondly, he's also the apostle who saw most clearly that the Messiah of Israel is also Messiah for the world. That through Christ, the ancient promise that all the families of the earth shall be blessed was being fulfilled. Third, though, he can see so clearly that while the movement, the Jesus movement, was spreading throughout the Gentile world, the majority of his Jewish brothers and sisters who heard the message did not embrace it. So the passage that we read last week was the opening of chapter 9, the opening of this kind of three-chapter section, and it was essentially a lament that named this reality and accented just how heartbreaking it was for Paul. Tonight, the lectionary has bumped us ahead a full chapter. The lectionary does that. And so it might not be altogether clear what it is he's trying to do here in this section, what he's building on. The key verse is the one with which we opened. It's a verse actually sadly missing from the lectionary, but that's never stopped me, so I put it in. It opens, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. In Greek, the telos, the culmination, or or that toward which everything has been heading. The meaning here is two-edged. Christ marks the end of the need to scrupulously follow each detail of the law because he's what the law, the Torah, has been pointing to all along. Now from that opening assertion, Paul goes on to do a midrash on a passage from the law, from Deuteronomy 30. Midrash, it's a very Jewish mode of engaging Scripture. You can think of it as being akin to what an improvisational jazz musician does with the familiar melody. The tune, the melody, is never completely lost or obscured, but in the act of improvising musically around it, the act of midrash, something new and fresh is heard. That's what Paul is doing with this passage from Deuteronomy. So let me read you what he starts with from Deuteronomy, from the Torah. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. Now this is from Deuteronomy, remember. 
It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. In Paul's midrash, in his improvisational interpretation of that Torah passage, the near word becomes Christ himself. But also the strong confessing word that Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. As Paul continues to improvise, he brings to the surface his core assertion, namely that this word, this word as close to you as the very beating of your own heart, is now a word for all. There is no distinction, he writes, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call upon him. Still, lingering in the background is that question, that problem he finds so agonizing. Why is it that so few of his Jewish brothers and sisters will embrace this word, this improvisational act that Christ has done in their very midst? Why is it that the proclamation that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek has such currency with the Gentiles, yet falls so flat for so many of the Jews. As Paul Actemeyer comments, what Paul is dealing with here is two contrasting ways of viewing the law, seeing it as a summons to uphold our relationship to God with our good works, which is the way that much of Judaism had come to see things, or seeing it as a summons to trust God, to uphold that relationship as an act of sheer grace, which is the place that Paul has come to. As a follower of Jesus, Paul had come to believe that the law had always been a summons to trust God. It's never been a vehicle for righteousness or to to somehow merit or earn grace or forgiveness. Then, in in Paul Ochtemeyer's view, the Apostle Paul had come to believe that while God had very much chosen Israel, in response, Israel had come to a place where they would seek to prove that God's choice was a good one by becoming a very religious people deserving by their own religious goodness what God has given them by grace. In setting out to merit God's grace, they ignored that grace and shifted the area of trust from God's goodness to their own goodness. So listen to the opening verse again. Christ is the end of of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, not for everyone who has scrupulously observed the law, demonstrated their righteousness, 
remained pure and unstained from prohibited things, offered the appointed sacrifices, tithed, no. For the same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. You just need to trust that, the apostle says. Funny thing, though, in so many ways, people, not just ancient people, not just Torah-shaped Jews of the ancient world, people, all of us, are inclined to think that there must be more to it than that, than simply trusting grace. There must be. And so many people crave, give me a solid black and white rule book, a moral guide, a kind of a how-to, so that I know what I need to do to earn my way to rightness with God, to deserve it. Give them that and they're off to the races. It's got to be more than trust, people think. We want to do more. And here's the big problem. If it really is all about trusting the grace and mercy of God, what if that low-life loser who I've never gotten along with and have no respect for, what if they trust or an ancient world issue, what if the Gentile trusts? Or a gospel issue, what if the prodigal son trusts? Or the tax collector trusts? Or, or, or. People want the bar raised higher than that. But Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. He's the end of the law. Now, I'm reminded as I read that line of a lecture that I hosted back in 1997 when I was chaplain at St. John's College. I have told this story once before in a sermon. I, I believe it was a good long time ago. Even if it wasn't, it bears hearing again. Our feature speaker that day was none other than Robert Ferrer Capon. The title of his lecture was, Why Jesus Marks the End of Religion, using that word, the end, very much in the same way that Paul uses it to talk about the end of the law. Why Jesus Marks the End of Religion. We held that lecture in the afternoon in the college cafe, after the lunch traffic had all cleared out, and we pretty much packed the place. Not because very many of the students and faculty knew much about Robert Ferrer Capon. The lecture title was kind of provocative, but really the draw was we had Steve Bell do the warm-up. And I think that's what actually caught people's attention. Well, as Robert started his lecture, he said that he was going to demonstrate to us that we were all hopelessly religious. At which point most of the people there kind of looked at each other and wondered. They were, they were studious uh, young scholars. They were beginning to look at the world through different lenses. They didn't, maybe they were spiritual, maybe they had faith, but religious, they weren't sure about that word. No, he said, you are hopelessly religious. 
But before he would demonstrate that, he wanted to share with us his recipe for pork chops. Puzzled looks and furrowed brows all around, people glancing at each other and wondering where this cat was going with this. You need to start with two good thick chops, he said, and don't even think about trimming off the fat. You'll need to get a decent cast iron pan, good and hot, so that you can sear both sides of those chops. A little olive oil in the pan will keep them from sticking. And once you've seared them well, turn down the heat to low, low, low. Chop an onion in half and put one half on top of each of the chops. Season with salt and fresh ground cracked pepper and pour in a full cup of heavy cream. At this point, the room gasped. And Capon said, see, I told you you were all hopelessly religious. And then he went back to his cooking instructions. Cover the pan with a tight-fitting lid, simmer at that low, low temperature for an hour, and voila, the richest, most tender pork chops you'll ever eat. But most of you won't even try them because you're too religious. You've bought the religion of diet and health. Those are the gods you serve. You will not Go for that much cream. You've cut it out of your diet. You've cut out the fat. You've cut out all the butters, the oils. You deprive yourself of a wonderful meal. True, one you should probably only eat from time to time. But you deprive yourself of it because you're trying to appease the gods of diet, health, and fitness. Your temple is the gym or the health food store. Your sacrifices are giving up all of the wonderful tastes and smells. Your offering is whatever the latest diet craze happens to be or the latest exercise fad. It's all bound to fail you because you will grow old and you will die. The gods of diet, fitness, and health can never deliver the promise, not ultimately, no matter how much you seek to serve them, no matter how much you sacrifice, but you don't believe it because you want that religion. And then Capon went on to talk about all of the other kinds of religiosities we can so easily fall into. The quest of money, financial success, or personal success, fame, being well thought of, sex, romance even, consumerism, on and on and on. You can see the things that we serve. And his point? Jesus represents freedom from having to pursue those kinds of happinesses because he can and he does deliver and he does it all by grace, and all you have to do is trust it. So sure, mind what you eat. Pork chops with a cup of cream every day, maybe not so much. But don't be afraid to indulge it when you need. Take care of your physical health. Go for a run in the mornings. Be a good steward of your finances. Fall in love 
and then do what you can to sustain it. Treat yourself to a lovely lamb's wool sweater when the autumn begins to turn and get cold. Go see a part of the world you've always dreamed of seeing, but just know that none of these things on their own can deliver life, can deliver meaning, can deliver fulfillment. And each of them can become a part of a blind alley religious quest for fulfillment, for meaning, for security on our terms as we hold them. But Christ, Christ is the end of the law, as Paul writes, and the end of religious strivings that hinge on what we can do. Trust that because it is accomplished. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.